Hello, friends. This is Cliff Knight from Equippers International. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We want to lift up Jesus and provide a place for you to learn more about Him and to grow in your relationship with Him. If you find the podcast helpful, feel free to share it with others. We believe it will be a source of blessing and encouragement, and you will be strengthened in your relationship with Jesus. Welcome back to the Equippers International Podcast. We're studying the book of Romans. We're going to be in this book for quite some time. We're in chapter 1, and we've covered the first 17 verses. That basically gets us through the introduction of the book. We've looked in the last two episodes at verses 16 and 17, which many consider to be the theme verses of the book. Paul does give his understanding of the gospel in a very concise, compact way, and we've looked at those verses in detail Verse 18 really launches into the content of the book. Now, I just want to make some introductory comments in regards to the structure of the book of Romans in this episode, because it's going to be important as we work our way through this book to keep our eye on the big picture, because it's easy to get down into the verse-by-verse process and to lose sight sometimes of the bigger picture. So I want to put that in context in this episode. And then also we're going to get into verse 18, where Paul starts this section that we're going to talk about today and look look at this key understanding of the wrath of God. So we have a lot of ground to cover in this episode. So let me start by just making some introductory comments regarding the structure of the book of Romans. Without getting too specific and hardline in our divisions, the book does seem to break up into several major sections, the first of which starts in verse 18, where we're starting today, and goes through to the end of chapter 3, some say to the end of chapter 4. But Uh, That section has a lot to do with God's righteousness, his faithful actions to rescue man from his desperate situation. Then chapters 5 through 8 have to do with Paul's understanding of what it looks like to be a part of God's people living in his ultimate design, living in what I call a truly human condition as God desires it to be. And then chapters 9 through 11, Paul's going to talk about God's promises and his faithful to Israel and how that relates to the Gentiles, because remember, he's writing to a church where these issues are very real. It's not just a theoretical discussion. It's a practical discussion that has great application into the needs of the people to which he's writing the letter. And then chapters 12 through 16 are more of a practical section where Paul takes up what it looks like to walk out the Christian life as believers and also in the context of community. So what Paul's doing in the book of Romans is he's carefully laying out his understanding of the gospel, and we've alluded to it already. He sees it as very closely related to the natural history of Israel in regards to it being linked to the Old Testament scriptures. He said it in the very first couple of verses. He said the gospel, which was promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. So he sees a strong connection. So Paul Paul's going to put his discussion into the context of the history of Israel because God chose the children of Israel as the natural vehicle to carry his intended plan for all of mankind. So the way Paul understands the gospel is that it was God's 
redemptive faithfulness acting in the natural through the expression of the children of Israel and his relationship and interaction with them. But what he was doing was something on a much larger scale. He was busy accomplishing salvation for all of mankind. So we kind of have these two levels and Paul progresses along these levels and he moves freely in and out of these narratives. And so as we interpret the book of Romans, it was going to be important for us to recognize into which narrative Paul is discussing and placing things in context. Is it this specific natural history of Israel journey, so to speak, whereby God works through the children of Israel in the giving of the law and their covenant relationship with him and their disobedience to that covenant and God's faithfulness to constantly pursue them and to bring them back into covenant relationship with him? which ultimately comes in Paul's understanding to a complete failure, just like the whole human race comes to a complete failure in their idolatry and their sinful actions and walking away from their created purpose in God. And God's righteousness, his posture toward this whole process is faithfulness. God is going to be true not only to the promises that he gave Israel to bring redemption and to bring a deliverance through the chosen servant of God, the Messiah, he's going to accomplish that also on a universal scale because it was God's intention from the very beginning, even the promises to Abraham, that God would bless him and make him a blessing to the nations, which means the whole rest of the world. So it was never just about Israel. It was about Israel for the purpose of God to bring about his greater redemption for all of mankind. So what Paul's doing in these first three chapters is he's presenting this story, this narrative in the form in many ways of a courtroom scene where he's putting Israel and all of mankind on trial. And he's showing that all of man falls short of the glory of God. We're going to see that in chapter three. It's his conclusion that everyone, even Jew and Gentile, have fallen short of the glory of God. And so God has a faithful, righteous response in regards to man's unfaithfulness. And so there's going to be this dialogue. He's going to be holding God's righteousness and man's unrighteousness in this tension between one another. And that's where the gospel comes in and brings the solution to show God's ultimate righteousness and faithfulness and making him the just judge to justify mankind based on his grounds and not on man's grounds. And so that's what Paul's going to do in these first three chapters. Now he's going to start in verse 18, and we're going to look at that in this episode. So let's read the verse, and then I'll make some comments. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, we're going to focus primarily on this idea of the wrath of God in this episode. But I want to point out that Paul transitions from verses 16 and 17 directly into verse 18. And there's some language here that if you've listened along in the episodes, especially the previous episode, we talked about in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this idea of the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel is, 
Paul also takes up this idea in verse 18 about something else being revealed, and it's the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. Now, I want to make one comment in regards to interpretation and ultimate application when we look at scriptures. And I've talked about this over and over again, and I'm a staunch believer that the scriptures were written in historical context. They were written to real people in real places in real time, and God primarily is speaking into that situation. Now, we can draw a lot of application, a lot of conclusions about what God has done, how he acted in history and how that reveals his character. And we develop our understanding of the things of God based on the way he interacted with people in the past. But in doing that, we have to always remember these letters that we study that were given to us, especially the letters of the New Testament, the epistles of the apostles to Christian communities, they were written many times in the context of the writers explaining to the believers the narrative, as I talk about, or the process of God in bringing about the redemption that he brought about in Christ at the cross. So they're focused on the good news of God, and they're focused on the outworking of that process. Now, that's exactly what Paul's doing. So why do I talk about this in such detail? Well, we got to be careful that we don't draw conclusions and applications that we would reach in and take a part of Paul's explanation of what is going on. He uses the present tense. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is present tense for us now. It means that it was present tense first and foremost for him 2,000 years ago. Now, whether that truth has transitioned depends on whether God's actions have been completed. And in many regards, when we look at the gospel and we look at the finished work of Christ, God's actions have been completed. And so we can now look back to those events and say, this is truth. This has been completed. When Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, he's saying primarily that in the process of bringing to pass his redemptive actions in Christ, God saw that there was ungodliness and unrighteousness in men. And his wrath is revealed from heaven in regards to that condition. Condition of man. That's his initial response, if you will. It's been his response all along, and in some degree, it is his response still. But as it facilitates God bringing about the solution, it's not something that continues to happen over and over again necessarily. And we're going to talk about this and try to explain it in more detail as we move on, especially in these first three chapters of the book. Because if we're not careful, we can begin to paint a portrait and a notion of God that is not true to who he is today based on the finished work of Jesus 2,000 years ago. So if that doesn't make sense, just bear with me, and I'm going to try to explain it more and more as we move through the book. Okay, so what Paul says is that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. And the wrath is revealed, notice that it's revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not revealed against men. It's revealed against against their condition. 
So what's Paul saying? I believe he's primarily saying that whatever this wrath is, and we're going to define that in just a moment and do some word study, and we're going to wrap up this episode from that perspective. He's saying that it's revealed against the condition of man because God is passionate about the condition of man because he is his precious creation that he created to be in right relationship with him. And there is something that has gotten in the way of that. And it is unrighteousness. It's ungodliness. And Paul's going to unpack for us now in the remainder of this chapter, especially what that looks like. But we'll look at that in subsequent episodes. But let's focus on this word wrath for a minute. There's two words in the New Testament that are translated wrath. Basically, it can be defined as indignation or anger. So the first word is the word orge. It's an internal disposition of agitation of the soul, so to speak. It's something that kind of churns inside of you and motivates you to act in some way to bring about justice or to bring about a right response to a situation that is in wrong standing. So Paul uses this word 11 times in the book of Romans, and that's the word used here. Now, another cross-reference passage to kind of help us put this into a little more context. Mark chapter 3, there's a narrative about Jesus who wants to heal a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so Jesus asked the Pharisees, because they were sitting there looking at him with disgust because he was working on the Sabbath, and he asked them if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, and they kept silent. They didn't answer. And so it says there in the text that Jesus looked at them with anger. He looked at them with this orge and he grieved their hardness of heart and then he healed the man. So this just gives us a little window into how God acts because Jesus is the representation of the Father. He doesn't act in anger and lashing out in some expression of the flesh as we think of anger. No, it's an inner disposition toward things that are standing in the way of the goodness of God toward mankind. So this anger is demonstrated also in punishment. There is an outward expression of this inward movement of disposition toward these things. And because these things grieve the heart of God, there has to be a result. And God puts forth that result in the form of judgment or punishment. And we're going to look at that in more detail. I'm not going to go into it in this episode, but let it suffice to say that that is a very real dynamic, but we're going to look at how God brings provision for that judgment in and through the person of Jesus and the gospel. And let me just say this about that process. God's punishment or his judgment, I believe, is carried out mostly by him simply giving man over to his own devices because built into man's own devices, his own idolatry, his own sinful actions is an innate judgment. And it kind of boomerangs back on man. But we're going to look at that in more detail as we go through these verses, especially moving on in this specific passage that we're in now. 
But there's this other word in the New Testament for anger, and it's the Greek word thumos, and it means passion and a boiling up of anger. It's used mostly, not completely, in regards to people and their anger. In Luke 4:28, the people were filled with rage and anger towards Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, the people in Ephesus were filled with rage, this anger, this thumos toward Paul, because his preaching of the gospel exposed this man, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, and he made idols and shrines to Artemis, a false god. And so it threatened their livelihood and it threatened their false religion. And so it says that their anger and their rage burned against Paul. And Paul also uses this same word in four passages in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, and Colossians, in what I call his vintage sin lists, where he talks about things that we should walk away from, that we shouldn't be given to these things. For instance, in Galatians, he talks about the deeds of the flesh, and he mentions this anger, this thumos. So it's really an expression of a humanly fleshly reaction. This is seldom used in regards to God's wrath. So these two words for wrath truly are different in their very root form. And so I think it's important for us to keep this in mind as we formulate this notion of the wrath of God and we don't let it fall into some human fleshly understanding of anger or the outburst of anger in a fleshly way, but that we understand it as God's disposition toward things that separate him from a right relationship with his presence precious creation, mankind. So let me just draw to conclusion this episode and kind of tie all this together. So there is this universal narrative that God is bringing salvation and deliverance to all mankind. And there's also this specific narrative of God showing his faithfulness and his covenant to the children of Israel to bring about their deliverance. Now, it's interesting to note that in that narrative, the one of Israel, it was totally congruent in their understanding that for God to be faithful, he would have to also be faithful to his promises to judge Israel. That's what happened through the prophets. The prophets prophesied that there would be a day of vengeance. There would be a day of vindication where God would have to judge the children of Israel for their disobedience. And it's similar to what we saw in the book of Hebrews when we studied there that it's a proof of their legitimacy as sons of God that God disciplines and he punishes those whom he loves just like a father. So God is going to punish Israel. He's going to bring judgment and they fully expected for that judgment to come. Now their understanding of it may not have been exactly in the way God understood it, which is seldom the case. We struggle to understand the things the way God understands them. But God was going to bring judgment and this judgment was going to be part of their deliverance. So it's the fulfillment of the judgment that came when God actually destroyed the expressions of the first covenant with Israel and he brought about the new covenant. We looked at that in detail in the book of Hebrews and this judgment primarily and mostly came through the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
So God's wrath was poured out on the institutions or on the nation of Israel as a whole because of their continued disobedience and because God recognized that this first covenant that he set up with the children of Israel was actually standing in the way of the children of Israel's relationship with him. So he had to remove that covenant, not that the covenant was faulty, but because the people's response and their ability to uphold the covenant was faulty. And in the same way, on a universal level, man's general disposition toward unrighteousness and ungodliness and his ability to live in a way that pleases God has been tainted because of him giving himself over to ungodly things. And so God stands in opposition to those things. So he's going to remove those barriers. And that's the gospel. That's the good news is that God makes a new covenant with Israel and universally he removes every hindrance so that man can come into a right relationship with God. So when it comes to the wrath, there are a couple different contexts in which Paul and other writers speak about it. The first is the context of Israel as a nation and a people in rebellion to God, and he's going to judge them. John the Baptist, the first thing he does when he pitches up on the scene, he warns the Pharisees to flee from the wrath to come. Now he's talking to a specific people. It wouldn't make sense if John the Baptist was preaching and telling Pharisees in the first century to flee the wrath to come if that wrath was going to come 2,000 years later or sometime even further out in the future. It wouldn't make sense for the Pharisees of that day to flee. So there was something very tangible coming, and it was in that generation that Jesus promised would take place. And so it was a very real imminent exhortation on the part of John the Baptist to the religious zealots of that day to shift their thinking and to flee by repenting and understanding the way God was going to bring about his judgment upon the nation of Israel and to bring about the promises of the covenant that he made with them that he would bring deliverance through the one Jesus Christ. So there's that context. And then there's the context of some future day where all men will be judged. Now I alluded to this at the very beginning of the episode, and we're going to look at that in more detail in chapter two, because Paul talks about how that judgment's going to come about, and all will be brought into account, but there won't be this idea of punishment in that judgment. I love the verse in 1 John 4, 17, and I'm going to end with this verse. John's talking about the love of God, and he says, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. So I believe this reference on the part of John is in regards to this futuristic judgment. There is some mystery wrapped around what that looks like. We don't have all the details spelled out for us like we do this other judgment that was very spelled out throughout all the Old Testament prophets and through the preaching and teaching of Jesus, specifically on the Mount of Olivet, where he gave the discourse about what that judgment was going to look like specifically when the temple was destroyed 
in the old covenant was done away with. But God promises for this futuristic judgment that those who have put their faith in Christ and who understand the love of God, they have great confidence in the day of judgment. So that is a different place to stand. And that's the place we stand as believers on this side of the finished work of the cross. We can have great confidence in any day of judgment that might come because we are secure in the covenant faithful love of God in our relationship with him because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And that's where we put our faith. So be strong and courageous and love Jesus more. 